Book Three, Sutras One to Thirty Six, of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, the Book of the Spiritual Man, an interpretation by Charles Johnston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maggie Russell, New York, New York. The Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, the Book of the Spiritual Man. An Interpretation by Charles Johnston Book 3, Sutras 1-36 to 36. Sutra 1 The binding of the perceiving consciousness to a certain region is attention, dharana. Emerson quotes Sir Isaac Newton as saying that he made his great discoveries by intending his mind on them. That is what is meant here. I read the page of a book while thinking of something else. At the end of the page, I have no idea of what it is about, and read it again, still thinking of something else, with the same result. Then I wake up, so to speak, make an effort of attention, fix my thought on what I am reading, and easily take in its meaning. The act of will, the effort of attention, the intending of the mind on each word and line of the page, just as the eyes are focused on each word and line, is the power here contemplated. It is the power to focus the consciousness on a given spot and hold it there. Attention is the first and indispensable step in all knowledge. Attention to spiritual things is the first step to spiritual knowledge. Sutra 2 A prolonged holding of the perceiving consciousness in that region is meditation, dhyana. This will apply equally to outer and inner things. I may for a moment fix my attention on some visible object, in a single penetrating glance, or I may hold the attention fixedly on it until it reveals far more of its nature than a single glance could perceive. The first is the focusing of the searchlight of consciousness upon the object. The other is the holding of the white beam of light steadily and persistently on the object until it yields up the secret of its details. So for things within. One may fix the inner gaze for a moment on spiritual things, or one may hold the consciousness steadily upon them, until what was in the dark slowly comes forth into the light, and yields up its immortal secret. But this is possible only for the spiritual man, after the commandments and the rules have been kept. For until this is done, the thronging storms of psychical thoughts dissipate and distract the attention, so that it will not remain fixed on spiritual things. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word of the spiritual message. Sutra 3 When the perceiving consciousness in this meditative is wholly given to illuminating the essential meaning of the object contemplated, and is freed from the sense of separateness and personality, this is contemplation, samadhi. Let us review the steps so far taken. First. The beam of perceiving consciousness is focused on a certain region or subject through the effort of attention. Then, this attending consciousness is held on its object. Third, there is the ardent will to know its meaning, to illumine it with comprehending thought. Fourth, all personal bias, all desire merely to endorse a previous opinion and so prove oneself right, 
and all desire for personal profit or gratification must be quite put away. There must be a purely disinterested love of truth for its own sake. Thus is the perceiving consciousness made void, as it were, of all personality or sense of separateness. The personal limitation stands aside and lets the all-consciousness come to bear upon the problem. The oversoul bends its ray upon the object and illumines it with pure light. Sutra 4 When these three, attention, meditation, contemplation, are exercised at once, this is perfectly concentrated meditation. Sanyama When the personal limitation of the perceiving consciousness stands aside and allows the all-consciousness to come to bear upon the problem, then arises that real knowledge which is called a flash of genius, that real knowledge which makes discoveries, and without which no discovery can be made, however painstaking the effort. For genius is the vision of the spiritual man, and that vision is a question of growth rather than present effort, though right effort, rightly continued, will in time infallibly lead to growth and vision. Through the power thus to set aside personal limitation, to push aside petty concerns and cares, and steady the whole nature and will in an ardent love of truth and desire to know it, through the power thus to make way for the all-consciousness, all great men make their discoveries. Newton, watching the apple fall to the earth, was able to look beyond, to see the subtle waves of force pulsating through apples and worlds and suns and galaxies, and thus to perceive universal gravitation. The Oversoul, looking through his eyes, recognized the universal force, one of its own children. Darwin, watching the forms and motions of plants and animals, let the same august consciousness come to bear on them, and saw infinite growth perfected through ceaseless struggle. He perceived the superb process of evolution, the Oversoul once more recognizing its own. Fraunhofer, noting the dark lines in the band of sunlight in his spectroscope, divined their identity with the bright lines in the spectra of incandescent iron, sodium, and the rest, and so saw the oneness of substance in the worlds and suns, the unity of the materials of the universe. Once again the Oversoul, looking with his eyes, recognized its own. So it is with all true knowledge. But the mind must transcend its limitations, its idiosyncrasies. There must be purity, for to the pure in heart is the promise that they shall see God. Sutra 5 By mastering this perfectly concentrated meditation, there comes the illumination of perception. The meaning of this is illustrated by what has been said before. When the spiritual man is able to throw aside the trammels of emotional and mental limitation and to open his eyes, he sees clearly. He attains to illuminated perception. A poet once said that occultism is the conscious cultivation of genius, and it is certain that the awakened spiritual man attains to the perceptions of genius. Genius is the vision, the power of the spiritual man, whether its possessor recognizes this or not. All true knowledge is of the spiritual man. The greatest in all ages have recognized this and put their testimony on record. The great in wisdom who have not consciously recognized it have ever been full of the spirit of reverence, of selfless devotion to truth, 
of humility, as was Darwin. And reverence and humility are the unconscious recognition of the nearness of the spirit, that divinity which broods over us, a master or a slave. Sutra 6 This power is distributed in ascending degrees. It is to be attained step by step. It is a question not of miracle, but of evolution, of growth. Newton had to master the multiplication table, then the four rules of arithmetic, then the rudiments of algebra, before he came to the binomial theorem. At each point there was attention, concentration, insight. Until these were attained, no progress to the next point was possible. So with Darwin. He had to learn the form and use of leaf and flower, of bone and muscle, the characteristics of genera and species, the distribution of plants and animals, before he had in mind that nexus of knowledge on which the light of his great idea was at last able to shine. So is it with all knowledge. So is it with spiritual knowledge. Take the matter this way. The first subject for the exercise of my spiritual insight is my day with its circumstances, its hindrances, its opportunities, its duties. I do what I can to solve it, to fulfill its duties, to learn its lessons. I try to live my day with aspiration and faith. That is the first step. By doing this, I gather a harvest for the evening. I gain a deeper insight into life, in virtue of which I begin the next day with a certain advantage, a certain spiritual advance and attainment so with all successive days. In faith and aspiration we pass from day to day, in growing knowledge and power, with never more than one day to solve at a time, until all life becomes radiant and transparent. Sutra 7 This threefold power of attention, meditation, contemplation is more interior than the means of growth previously described. Very naturally so, because the means of growth previously described were concerned with the extrication of the spiritual man from the psychic bondages and veils, while this threefold power is to be exercised by the spiritual man thus extricated, and standing on his feet, viewing life with open eyes. Sutra 8 But this triad is still exterior to the soul vision which is unconditioned, free from the seed of mental analyses. The reason is this. The threefold power we have been considering, the triad of attention, contemplation, meditation, is, so far as we have yet considered it, the focusing of the beam of perceiving consciousness upon some form of manifesting being, with a view of understanding it completely. There is a higher stage where the beam of consciousness is turned back upon itself, and the individual consciousness enters into and knows the all-consciousness. This is a being, a being in immortality rather than a knowing. It is free from mental analysis or mental forms. It is not an activity of the higher mind, even the mind of the spiritual man. It is an activity of the soul. Had Newton risen to this higher stage, he would have known not the laws of motion, but that high being from whose life comes eternal motion. Had Darwin risen to this, he would have seen the soul, whose graduated thought and being all evolution expresses. There are therefore these two perceptions that of living things, and that of the life, that of the soul's works, and that of the soul itself. 
Sutra 9. One of the ascending degrees is the development of control. First there is the overcoming of the mind-impressive excitation. Then comes the manifestation of the mind-impressive control. Then the perceiving consciousness follows after the moment of control. This is the development of control. The meaning seems to be this. Some object enters the field of observation, and at first violently excites the mind, stirring up curiosity, fear, wonder. Then the consciousness returns upon itself, as it were, and takes the perception firmly in hand, steadying itself and viewing the matter calmly from above. The steadying effort of the will upon the perceiving consciousness is control, and immediately upon it follows perception, understanding, insight. Take a trite example. Supposing one is walking in an Indian forest. A charging elephant suddenly appears. The man is excited by astonishment and, perhaps, terror. But he exercises an effort of will, perceives the situation in its true bearings, and recognizes that a certain thing must be done. In this case, probably, that he must get out of the way as quickly as possible. Or, a comet, unheralded, appears in the sky like a flaming sword. The beholder is at first astonished, perhaps terror-stricken, but... He takes himself in hand, controls his thoughts, views the apparition calmly, and finally calculates its orbit and its relation to meteor showers. These are extreme illustrations, but with all knowledge the order of perception is the same. First, the excitation of the mind by the new object impressed on it. Then, the control of the mind from within, upon which follows the perception of the nature of the object. Where the eyes of the spiritual man are open, this will be a true and penetrating spiritual perception. In some such way do our living experiences come to us, first with a shock of pain, then the soul steadies itself and controls the pain, then the spirit perceives the lesson of the event and its bearing upon the progressive revelation of life. Sutra 10 Through frequent repetition of this process, the mind becomes habituated to it, and there arises an equable flow of perceiving consciousness. Control of the mind by the soul, like control of the muscles by the mind, comes by practice and constant voluntary repetition. As an example of control of the muscles by the mind, take the ceaseless practice by which a musician gains mastery over his instrument, or a fencer gains skill with a rapier. Innumerable small efforts of attention will make a result which seems well-nigh miraculous, which, for the novice, is really miraculous. Then consider that far more wonderful instrument, the perceiving mind, played on by that fine musician, the soul. Here again, innumerable small efforts of attention will accumulate into mastery, and a mastery worth winning. For a concrete example, Take the gradual conquest of each day, the effort to live that day for the soul. To him that is faithful unto death, the Master gives the crown of life. Sutra 11 The gradual conquest of the mind's tendency to flit from one object to another, and the power of one-pointedness, make the development of contemplation. 
as an illustration of the mind's tendency to flit from one object to another take a small boy learning arithmetic he begins two ones are two three ones are three and then he thinks of the three coins in his pocket which will purchase so much candy in the store down the street next to the toy shop where are baseballs marbles and so on and then he comes back with a jerk to four ones are four so with us also we are seeking the meaning of our task but the mind takes advantage of a moment of slackened attention and flits off from one frivolous detail to another till we suddenly come back to consciousness after traversing leagues of space we must learn to conquer this and to go back within ourselves into the beam of perceiving consciousness itself which is a beam of the oversoul this is the true one-pointedness the bringing of our consciousness to a focus in the soul sutra thirteen through this the inherent character distinctive marks and conditions of being and powers according to their development are made clear by the power defined in the preceding sutra the inherent character distinctive marks and conditions of beings and powers are made clear for through this power as defined we get a twofold view of each object seeing at once all its individual characteristics and its essential character species and genus we see it in relation to itself and in relation to the eternal thus we see a rose as that particular flower with its color and scent its peculiar fold of each petal but we also see in it the species the family to which it belongs with its relation to all plants to all life to life itself so in any day we see events and circumstances we also see in it the lessons set for the soul by the eternal sutra fourteen every object has its characteristics which are already quiescent those which are active and those which are not yet definable every object has characteristics belonging to its past its present and its future in a fir tree for example there are the stumps or scars of dead branches which once represented its foremost growth there are the branches with their needles spread out to the air there are the buds at the end of each branch and twig which carry the still closely packed needles which are the promise of the future in like manner the chrysalis has as its past the caterpillar as its future the butterfly the man has in his past the animal in his future the angel both are visible even now in his face so with all things for all things change and grow sutra fifteen difference in stage is the cause of difference in development this but amplifies what has just been said the first stage is the sapling the caterpillar the animal the second stage is the growing tree the chrysalis the man the third is the splendid pine the butterfly the angel difference of stage is the cause of difference of development so it is among men and among the races of men sutra 16 through perfectly concentrated meditation on the three stages of development comes a knowledge of past and future we have taken our illustrations from natural science because 
since every true discovery in natural science is a divination of a law in nature, attained through a flash of genius, such discoveries really represent acts of spiritual perception, acts of perception by the spiritual man, even though they are generally not so recognized. So we may once more use the same illustration. Perfectly concentrated meditation, perfect insight into the chrysalis, reveals the caterpillar that it has been, the butterfly that it is destined to be. He who knows the seed, knows the seed pod or ear it has come from, and the plant that is to come from it. So in like manner, he who really knows today, and the heart of today, knows its parent, yesterday, and its child, tomorrow. Past, present, and future are all in the eternal. He who dwells in the eternal knows all three. Sutra 17 The sound and the object and the thought called up by a word are confounded because they are all blurred together in the mind. By perfectly concentrated meditation on the distinction between them, there comes an understanding of the sounds uttered by all beings. It must be remembered that we are speaking of perception by the spiritual man. Sound, like every force, is the expression of a power of the eternal. Infinite shades of this power are expressed in the infinitely varied tones of sound. He who, having entry to the consciousness of the eternal, knows the essence of this power, can divine the meanings of all sounds, from the voice of the insect to the music of the spheres. In like manner, he who has attained to spiritual vision can perceive the mind images in the thoughts of others, with the shade of feeling which goes with them, thus reading their thoughts as easily as he hears their words. Everyone has the germ of this power, since difference of tone will give widely differing meanings to the same words, meanings which are intuitively perceived by everyone. Sutra 18 when the mind impressions become visible, there comes an understanding of previous births. This is simple enough if we grasp the truth of rebirth. The fine harvest of past experiences is drawn into the spiritual nature, forming, indeed, the basis of its development. When the consciousness has been raised to a point above these fine subjective impressions, and can look down upon them from above, this will in itself be a remembering of past births. Sutra 19. By perfectly concentrated meditation on mind images is gained the understanding of the thoughts of others. Here, for those who can profit by it, is the secret of thought reading. Take the simplest case of intentional thought transference. It is the testimony of those who have done this that the perceiving mind must be stilled before the mind image projected by the other mind can be seen. With it comes a sense of the feeling and temper of the other mind, and so on, in higher degrees. Sutra 20 But since that on which the thought in the mind of another rests is not objective to the thought-reader's consciousness, he perceives the thought only, and not also that on which the thought rests. The meaning appears to be simple one may be able to perceive the thoughts of someone at a distance. One cannot, by that means alone, also perceive the external surroundings of that person, 
which arouse these thoughts. Sutra 21 By perfectly concentrated meditation on the form of the body, by arresting the body's perceptibility, and by inhibiting the eye's power of sight, there comes the power to make the body invisible. There are many instances of the exercise of this power, by mesmerists, hypnotists, and the like, and we may simply call it an instance of the power of suggestion. Shankara tells us that by this power the popular magicians of the East perform their wonders, working on the mind images of others, while remaining invisible themselves. It is all a question of being able to see and control the mind images. Sutra 22 The works which fill out the lifespan may be either immediately or gradually operative. By perfectly concentrated meditation on these comes a knowledge of the time of the end, as also through signs. A garment which is wet, says the commentator, may be hung up to dry, and so dry rapidly, or it may be rolled in a ball and dry slowly, so a fire may blaze or smolder. Thus it is with karma, the works that fill out the lifespan. By an insight into the mental forms and forces which make up karma, there comes a knowledge of the rapidity or slowness of their development, and of the time when the debt will be paid. Sutra 23 By perfectly concentrated meditation on sympathy, compassion, and kindness is gained the power of interior union with others. Unity is the reality, separateness the illusion. The nearer we come to reality, the nearer we come to unity of heart. Sympathy, compassion, kindness are modes of this unity of heart, whereby we rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. These things are learned by desiring to learn them. Sutra 24 by perfectly concentrated meditation on power, even such power as that of the elephants may be gained. This is a pretty image. Elephants possess not only force, but poise and fineness of control. They can lift a straw, a child, a tree, with perfectly judged control and effort. So the simile is a good one. By detachment, by withdrawing into the soul's reservoir of power, we can gain all these, force and finesse and poise, the ability to handle with equal mastery things small and great, concrete and abstract alike. Sutra 25 By bending upon them the awakened inner light, there comes a knowledge of things subtle, or concealed, or obscure. As was said at the outset, each consciousness is related to all consciousness, and, through it, has a potential consciousness of all things, whether subtle or concealed or obscure. An understanding of this great truth will come with practice. As one of the wise has said, we have no conception of the power of meditation. Sutra 26 By perfectly concentrated meditation on the sun, comes a knowledge of the worlds. This has several meanings. First, by a knowledge of the constitution of the sun, 
astronomers can understand the kindred nature of the stars. And it is said that there is a finer astronomy where the spiritual man is the astronomer. But the sun also means the soul, and through knowledge of the soul comes a knowledge of the realms of life. Sutra 27 By perfectly concentrated meditation on the moon comes a knowledge of the lunar mansions. Here again are different meanings. The moon is, first, the companion planet, which each day passes backward through one mansion of the stars. By watching the moon, the boundaries of the mansion are learned, with their succession in the great time-dial of the sky. But the moon also symbolizes the analytic mind, with its divided realms, and these two may be understood through perfectly concentrated meditation. Sutra 28 By perfectly concentrated meditation on the fixed pole star comes a knowledge of the motion of the stars. Addressing duty, stern daughter of the voice of God, Wordsworth finally said, Thou cost preserve the stars from wrong, and the most ancient heavens through thee are fresh and strong. Thus suggesting a profound relation between the moral powers and the powers that rule the worlds. So in this sutra, the fixed pole star is the eternal spirit about which all things move, as well as the star toward which points the axis of the earth. Deep mysteries attend both, and the veil of mystery is only to be raised by meditation, by open-eyed vision of the awakened spiritual man. Sutra 29 Perfectly concentrated meditation on the center of force in the lower trunk brings an understanding of the order of the bodily powers. We are coming to a vitally important part of the teaching of yoga, namely, the spiritual man's attainment of full self-consciousness, the awakening of the spiritual man as a self-conscious individual, behind and above the natural man. In this awakening, and in the process of gestation which precedes it, there is a close relation with the powers of the natural man, which are, in a certain sense, the projection, outward and downward, of the powers of the spiritual man. This is notably true of that creative power of the spiritual man which, when embodied in the natural man, becomes the power of generation. Not only is this power the cause of the continuance of the bodily race of mankind, but further, in the individual, it is the key to the dominance of the personal life. Rising, as it were, through the life channels of the body, it flushes the personality with physical force, and maintains and colors the illusion that the physical life is the dominant and all-important expression of life. In due time, when the spiritual man has begun to take form, the creative force will be drawn off, and become operative in building the body of the spiritual man, just as it has been operative in the building of physical bodies, through generation in the natural world. Perfectly concentrated meditation on the nature of this force means, first, that rising of the consciousness into the spiritual world, already described, which gives the one sure foothold for meditation, and then, from that spiritual point of vantage, not only an insight into the creative force, in its spiritual and physical aspects, but also a gradually attained control of this wonderful force, which will mean its direction to the body of the spiritual man, 
and its gradual withdrawal from the body of the natural man, until the overpressure, so general, and such a fruitful source of misery in our day, is abated, and purity takes the place of passion. This overpressure, which is the cause of so many evils, and so much of human shame, is an abnormal, not a natural condition. It is primarily due to spiritual blindness, to blindness regarding the spiritual man, and ignorance even of his existence. For by this blind ignorance are closed the channels through which, were they open, the creative force could flow into the body of the spiritual man, there building up an immortal vesture. There is no cure for blindness, with its consequent overpressure and attendant misery and shame, but spiritual vision, spiritual aspiration, sacrifice, the new birth from above. There is no other way to lighten the burden, to lift the misery and shame from human life. Therefore, let us follow after sacrifice and aspiration. Let us seek the light. In this way only shall we gain that insight into the order of the bodily powers, and that mastery of them which this sutra implies. Sutra 30 By perfectly concentrated meditation on the center of force in the well of the throat, there comes the cessation of hunger and thirst. We are continuing the study of the bodily powers and centers of force in their relation to the powers and forces of the spiritual man. We have already considered the dominant power of physical life, the creative power which secures the continuance of physical life, and further, the manner in which, through aspiration and sacrifice, it is gradually raised and set to the work of upbuilding the body of the spiritual man. We come now to the dominant psychic force, the power which manifests itself in speech, and in virtue of which the voice may carry so much of the personal magnetism, endowing the order with a tongue of fire, magical in its power to arouse and rule the emotions of his hearers. This emotional power, this distinctively psychical force, is the cause of hunger and thirst, the psychical hunger and thirst for sensations, which is the source of our two-sided life of emotionalism, with its hopes and fears, its expectations and memories, its desires and hates. The source of the psychical power, or, perhaps we should say, its center of activity in the physical body, is said to be in the cavity of the throat. Thus, in the Taitiriya Upanishad, it is written, There is this shining ether in the inner being. Therein is the spiritual man, formed through thought, immortal, golden. Inward, in the palate, the organ that hangs down like a nipple, this is the womb of Indra, and there, where the dividing of the hair turns, extending upward to the crown of the head. Indra is the name given to the creative power of which we have spoken, and which, we are told, resides in the organ which hangs down like a nipple inward in the palate. Sutra 31 By perfectly concentrated meditation, on the center of force in the channel called the tortoise formed, comes steadfastness. We are concerned now with the center of nervous or psychical force below the cavity of the throat, in the chest, in which is felt the sensation of fear, the center, the disturbance of which sets the heart beating miserably with dread, or which produces that sense of terror through which the heart is said to stand still. When the truth concerning fear is thoroughly mastered, through spiritual insight into the immortal, fearless life, then this force is perfectly controlled, 
there is no more fear, just as, through the control of the psychic power, which works through the nerve center in the throat, there comes a cessation of hunger and thirst. Thereafter, these forces, or their spiritual prototypes, are turned to the building of the spiritual man. Always, it must be remembered, the victory is first a spiritual one. Only later does it bring control of the bodily powers. Sutra 32 Through perfectly concentrated meditation on the light in the head comes the vision of the masters who have attained. The tradition is that there is a certain center of force in the head, perhaps the pineal gland, which some of our Western philosophers have supposed to be the dwelling of the soul, a center which is, as it were, the doorway between the natural and the spiritual man. It is the seat of that better and wiser consciousness behind the outward-looking consciousness in the forward part of the head, that better and wiser consciousness of the back of the mind, which views spiritual things and seeks to impress the spiritual view on the outward-looking consciousness in the forward part of the head. It is the spiritual man seeking to guide the natural man, seeking to bring the natural man to concern himself with things of his immortality. This is suggested in the words of the Upanishad, already quoted. There, where the dividing of the hair turns, extending upward to the crown of the head, all of which may sound very fantastical, until one comes to understand it. It is said that when this power is fully awakened, it brings a vision of the great companions of the spiritual man, those who have already attained, crossing over to the further shore of the sea of death and rebirth. Perhaps it is to this divine sight that the master alluded, who is reported to have said, I counsel you to buy of me eye salve, that you may see. It is of this same vision of the great companions, the children of light, that a seer wrote, Though inland far we be, our souls have sight of that immortal sea, which brought us hither, can in a moment travel thither, and see the children sport upon the shore, and hear the mighty waters rolling evermore. Sutra 33 Or through the divining power of intuition he knows all things. This is really the supplement, the spiritual side of the sutra just translated. Step by step, as the better consciousness, the spiritual view gains force in the back of the mind. So in the same measure, the spiritual man is gaining the power to see, learning to open the spiritual eyes. When the eyes are fully opened, the spiritual man beholds the great companion standing about him. He has begun to know all things. This divining power of intuition is the power which lies above and behind the so-called rational mind. The rational mind formulates a question, and lays it before the intuition, which gives a real answer, often immediately distorted by the rational mind, yet always embodying a kernel of truth. It is by this process, through which the rational mind brings questions to the intuition for solution, that the truths of science are reached, the flashes of discovery and genius. But this higher power need not work in subordination to the so-called rational mind. It may act directly, as full illumination, the vision and the faculty divine. Sutra 34 By perfectly concentrated meditation on the heart, the interior being, comes the knowledge of consciousness. The heart here seems to mean, as it so often does in the Upanishads, the interior spiritual nature, the consciousness of the spiritual man, which is related to the heart and to the wisdom of the heart. By steadily seeking after and finding the consciousness of the spiritual man, by coming to consciousness as the spiritual man, a perfect knowledge of consciousness will be attained. 
for the consciousness of the spiritual man has this divine quality while being and remaining a truly individual consciousness it at the same time flows over as it were and blends with the divine consciousness above and about it the consciousness of the great companions and by showing itself to be one with the divine consciousness it reveals the nature of all consciousness the secret that all consciousness is one and divine sutra 35 the personal self seeks to feast on life through a failure to perceive the distinction between the personal self and the spiritual man all personal experience really exists for the sake of another namely the spiritual man by perfectly concentrated meditation on experience for the sake of the self comes a knowledge of the spiritual man the divine ray of the higher self which is eternal impersonal and abstract descends into life and forms a personality which through the stress and storm of life is hammered into a definite and concrete self-conscious individuality the problem is to blend these two powers taking the eternal and spiritual being of the first and blending with it transferring into it the self-conscious individuality of the second and thus bringing to life a third being the spiritual man who is heir to the immortality of his father the higher self and yet has the self-conscious concrete individuality of his other parent the personal self this is the true immaculate conception the new birth from above conceived of the holy spirit of this new birth it is said that which is born of the spirit is spirit ye must be born again rightly understood therefore the whole life of the personal man is for another not for himself he exists only to render his very life and all his experience for the building up of the spiritual man only through failure to see this does he seek enjoyment for himself seek to secure the feasts of life for himself not understanding that he must live for the other live sacrificially offering both feasts and his very being on the altar giving himself as a contrition for the building of the spiritual man when he does understand this and lives for the higher self setting his heart and thought on the higher self then his sacrifice bears divine fruit the spiritual man is built up consciousness awakens in him and he comes fully into being as a divine and immortal individuality sutra 36 thereupon are born the divine power of intuition and the hearing the touch the vision the taste and the power of smell of the spiritual man when in virtue of the perpetual sacrifice of the personal man daily and hourly giving his life for his divine brother the spiritual man and through the radiance ever pouring down from the higher self eternal in the heavens the spiritual man comes to birth there awaken him those powers whose psychical counterparts we know in the personal man the spiritual man begins to see to hear to touch to taste and besides the senses of the spiritual man there awakes his mind that divine counterpart of the mind of the physical man the power of direct and immediate knowledge the power of spiritual intuition of divination this power as we have seen owes its virtue to the unity the continuity of consciousness whereby whatever is known to any consciousness is knowable by any other consciousness thus the consciousness of the spiritual man who lives above our narrow barriers of separateness is an intimate touch with the consciousness of the great companions and can draw on that vast reservoir for all real needs 
Thus arises within the spiritual man that certain knowledge which is called intuition, divination, illumination. End of Book 3, Sutras 1-36 to of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, The Book of the Spiritual Man An Interpretation by Charles Johnston Recording by Maggie Russell, New York, New York